0: Thank you, praise team, for leading our singing today. Church, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, if you will. It was several years ago. It it was kind of an alarming moment. You know, as as everything kind of unfolded, I was going to the front door, and attached to the front door was this piece of paper it was a pink colored piece of paper. I was like, what is what is going on? What's this? He's like, I missed a UPS delivery. But as I got to it, it had this warning sign on it. And it was very clear this was an official document that was given. And the city had placed it there. And someone had complained about my dogs barking in the middle of the night. Now you think, well, that's not a huge issue. But I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, why, why would somebody be complaining? And who is this unknown neighbor making this complaint? So I called the city, I called the number, and I asked them what was going on. I said, oh yeah, you have a neighbor who called to say that your dogs were keeping them at night and this can't go on anymore. So there was this veiled threat, right? Like there's gonna be some consequences if this happens again. Now, hear me say this. There have been times when my dogs have barked in the middle of the night. They have, quote, disturbed the peace, right? And yes, it is a maddening thing, but often they bark because there's a reason to bark. So an animal comes into our yard or is on the fence. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we wake up with some sort of an animal laying in our backyard that the dogs have killed. Or there's foot traffic in the easement area behind our house, or maybe even a motorized vehicle of some sort. So the dogs have a reason to be barking. So when the person on the the phone made this veiled threat against me and my dogs, I had one of those moments where I wasn't sure I knew what to do. How do I respond in this moment? I mean, the truth is, there's is no proof that it was my dogs who were barking. They didn't take like a barkalizer test and identify that it was my dogs. There was no video surveillance that this was my, and there are many dogs who live in that area that could, it could have been the issue. On the other hand, Amy's dogs are known to bark in the middle of the night, <laughs> right? So I, we could have been the guilty party, that was the fact. So what did I do? Well, I think I assured the person that I was speaking to that I would go have a talk with the dogs. Now, you'll be happy to know, you'll be happy to know that those unnamed neighbors don't live next to us anymore. Uh, I, I don't know why they moved. I don't think it was because of the dogs, but maybe it was. Well, in our study of the book of Acts, we've seen the apostles accused of many things. We've seen the apostles accused of usurping authority. We've seen them accused of starting a riot. We have seen them accused of turning the whole world upside down. And now we see there's this situation where there is this, this accusation of disturbing the peace. So as we continue in our study of Acts and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 19, we again find ourselves in the city Of Ephesus. And as we look to the text today, what we're going to see is that the gospel upends personal agendas, the gospel upends worldly values, the gospel upends false gods and false hope, and the gospel upends pseudo peace. So would you stand together as we read in God's Word, Acts chapter 19, verse 21. We're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter today, but I want to begin just by reading through verse 27. Acts 19 verses 21 through 27. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Ephesians, Ephesus is in the region that was called Asia at the time. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that From this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, And that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Will you pray with me? God, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see truth and our ears to hear it and our minds to understand it and our hearts to embrace it. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would take truth and you would change us. And change this city and change this nation and change this world for your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, first this morning, we see that the gospel upends personal agendas. The gospel upends personal agendas. So we left off last week and you remember this incredible testimony about what God was doing there in Ephesus. You remember these seven sons of Sceva. They were itinerant Jewish uh, exorcists. They heard Paul preaching, and they saw the ministry that was taking place, the the extraordinary ministry, even when his handkerchiefs and sweat rags and aprons were being taken to the sick, and they were being healed, and, and they wanted a piece of the action. So they started to use Jesus's name in their, quote, ministry. And you'll recall that one of the demon's came out and and basically sent them home running running scared, injured, and naked. So after that, the people were, were growing in the fear of the Lord, and they began to follow the Lord more fully. In fact, those who had came under the ministry of the Apostle Paul came to believe in Christ based on his ministry, which had been somewhat lengthy there in Ephesus at that time. They began to think, oh, wait, I can't live the same way anymore. So they took their magic books, and they came, and they publicly confessed their sin, and they publicly renounced their sin by throwing these magic books, and remember, there's 50,000 pieces of silver worth of magic books that were thrown into the fire. Why? Because they understood the priority of living for and following the one true and living God, and they couldn't remain in their sin, they couldn't remain in their syncretism, though they were to follow the Lord Jesus fully. So in verse 21, after these things, right? So there is a fruitful ministry. There is a great ministry that is taking place here Paul is telling us what he longs to do. Verse 21 reflects back on that. And then Paul says that he was resolved in spirit. Luke tells us that Paul was resolved in spirit to go to Macedonia and Achaia on his way to Jerusalem and then ultimately to get to Rome. So the first question for us is this. What does it mean that Paul was resolved in the spirit? What does it mean that Paul was resolved in spirit? The Spirit. The second thing is this, does it really matter? I mean, was Paul calling the shots here or was he following the lead of the Spirit? Does it really matter? He was just trying to do the work of the Lord, so does it really matter? Well, the answer to the second question is yes, it matters. Because in the, in the New Testament, there is great emphasis on dying to ourselves and living to Christ, There is great emphasis on crucifying the flesh and walking in truth and walking in righteousness. There's great emphasis on walking with the Spirit in the New Testament. Paul writes of being led by the Spirit, seeking to follow the Spirit. So clearly there is a a moral aspect to being led by or following or walking with the Spirit or abiding in Christ, right? We abide in Christ And we bear much fruit. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We walk with the Spirit. The Spirit of God takes up residence inside those who are in Christ. And the Spirit of God creates within us fruit love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, right? God is changing us. He's transforming our lives. He's making us more like Christ. So we walk with the Spirit and there's clearly a moral or an ethical component to this, but not only that, there is a very literal component of walking with the Spirit, of following the Spirit's lead, right? We read this over and over again in Scripture, we re- think about this with even with Jesus. After he was baptized, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. This is where he underwent the temptations by Satan for at least 40 days, right? We know this. There is a very literal sense of following the Spirit's lead. In the book of Acts, we've seen this, how the Spirit has closed doors or opportunities for Paul and his associates to go into certain regions, right? We were prevented from going into Bithynia, or we prevented from going into certain areas because the spirit and you recall that the spirit led them to a place called Troas it was a port city and at Troas they saw a vision of a man saying come over to Macedonia to help us what is the spirit doing the spirit is leading Paul the spirit is leading the followers of Jesus Christ even in a literal sense go here don't go there so when Paul says, I want to get to Macedonia and Achaia, I want to get back to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to go to Rome, we believe that he is following the prompting of the Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, which we'll get to in a few weeks here, uh, Paul is saying farewell to the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he's doing so from a place called Miletus, and he gives this long, lengthy speech, one of three or four speeches of, of Paul recorded in the book of Acts, And in Acts chapter 20, Paul says to them, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. In other words, I'm going there for a reason. I'm going there because the Spirit is leading me that way, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So a few things here. Paul wants to get to Jerusalem, ultimately to Rome, because he believes that God's spirit is leading him there. There. And again, this isn't about his own personal desires. This isn't about a personal agenda. No, the gospel is upending our personal agendas. It's not like he's going there because that's home sweet home and everything's going to be wonderful. No, he says that the Spirit of God is already testifying that there's going to be trials and persecutions and afflictions that await him wherever he goes as he follows the leading of the Holy Spirit. This isn't about his comfort. In fact, he says, I, I don't even consider myself important. This isn't about me. I just want to finish the race that God has given to me, the ministry that he has given to me. He understands that his life is not his own. You know, he's been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He is to glorify God in his body. It's not about his personal agenda. Jesus shed his blood to reconcile Paul to God through faith in Christ. So he is to live now for the glory of God. It's not about his agenda. The gospel upends our personal agenda. Now elsewhere, elsewhere in scripture, we're going to see that Paul was actually also collecting an offering to bring back to the impoverished church there in Jerusalem. So he would go to the Gentile believers and he would ask them to give to support the the ministry to support the believers, those who were impoverished in Jerusalem, to care for the church there. So that's part of what he's doing, but he's being led by the Spirit for every step that he's taking. He was going where God was leaving. And note the ending of verse 21. Paul says, and I must see Rome. I must see Rome. Friends, this isn't about some kind of a tourist trip. This isn't about sightseeing. This is the divine imperative on his life. I must do this. He senses that God has a plan for his life, a plan that brings him to Rome for some reason. Probably doesn't fully understand it at this point, but he understands that he wants to go. He wants to go with the gospel, and he wants to expend his life for the glory of God. Friends, the gospel upends our personal agendas. The gospel upends our personal agendas and it beckons us to die to ourselves and to live for the glory of the one who took on flesh and then died in our place and rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death forever. Paul writes that it's the love of Christ, Second Corinthians chapter two, that compels him that compels him in his life to prioritize the gospel, to, to be transformed by the gospel, to walk in righteousness, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which he has been called, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It is the love of Christ. It is the glory of Christ. And so Paul, out of gratitude for what God has done in his life, is seeking to die to himself. That's what the gospel does in those it is Transforming. It upends our personal agendas. So I ask you, what areas of your life have you closed off to the Holy Spirit in an effort to establish your own ways or in an effort to enact your own agenda or your own plan? Friend, because of God's grace, I encourage you to humbly confess those areas to the Lord. And seek to follow him in every aspect of your being, in every aspect of your life. Take moments to pray together as a family and individually and just say, God, I wanna live more fully for your glory. I wanna live more fully devoted to the gospel. I wanna put my worldly, earthly, selfish agenda and desires aside because of the grace that you have shown me in my life. Whatever that looks like for you, would you confess and ask God to move in your life? But secondly, we see the gospel upends worldly values. The gospel upends worldly values. So after reading about how Paul sent some associates on ahead, we get to really to the heart of the passage here. So Paul's still in Ephesus and there's a man named Demetrius who's in Ephesus. We learn that he's a silversmith by trade. He's likely maybe the president of the silversmithing guild there in Ephesus and he holds some sway, right? He he calls together people who were associated with the trade and he says, we have a problem on our hands. There's something going on here and we, we have to deal with it. We have to do something about it. In a nutshell, he's saying, look, ever since this guy Paul came, think about this people are different, people are changing, they're not buying our stuff anymore, our bottom line's taking a hit and by the way, everything's coming undone and pretty soon if Paul is able to continue ministry here, then then everything's gonna get turned upside down. Look, the peace is at risk here. And we've had a good thing for a long time. I mean, Artemis is there, the goddess Artemis. She's great and, and we worship her and we make a lot of money. But now because Paul's here, people are starting to believe what he has to say. People are starting to believe the gospel. As I mentioned several weeks ago in Ephesus, there was a grand temple. It was called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple of Artemis, also known as Diana, this goddess by the Romans. Uh, it was one of the largest the largest building of the time over 400 feet in length and over 200 feet in width and over 60 feet tall it was held together by 127 columns this was a magnificent building and it was all to the glory of artemis the goddess of fertility in this area and she was well known And everyone worshiped her there. And she had priestesses who served her. And and there was all sorts of immorality and debauchery associated with the worship of this goddess. And the legend had it, and we'll see this later when the town clerk begins to speak, that her image was sent down from Zeus in a rock. So someone stumbles upon this rock that has an image of this goddess named Artemis, and they construct this temple, and now they construct these shrines, and they begin to worship this goddess named Artemis. Again, a fertility goddess. So these silversmiths then would fashion images of the temple and fashion images of Artemis, and it was a lucrative business. And most commentators believe that this episode took place during what was known as Artemisia. So this was a month-long festival Uh, where the people would all come together to worship this goddess and it was filled with all sorts of immorality and debauchery and as you can imagine that'd be a really good time for people who were in the silversmith business trying to sell relics that pictured the god they were worshiping but it was a really bad time if one named paul was there proclaiming christ and everything was being transformed people were now beginning to see the lies that they had built in but they love their money they love their money so they had to say well we got to do something about this and we're going to see here in a minute that that uh, Demetrius is going to appeal to their religion too but the first idol that that he's focused on is the bottom line is the money verse 26 Paul persuaded a great many people and they are turning away in essence he's saying they're not buying our stuff Things aren't going quite as lucrative, lucratively as for us anymore. So generally, look, when our values are threatened, we're motivated to do something. When our idols are threatened, we're motivated to do something. Think about that. When is the last time that you were inconvenienced in some way? And what did you do about it? I mean, a lot of us, you know, we'll, we, we prioritize ourselves. And when things don't go the way we want them to do, when we're inconvenienced by someone else, we respond, maybe vocally, maybe, maybe just mentally with our attitude, or maybe some other way. But let's just think of a situation. So you're driving, right? You're driving, and someone cuts you off. They get in the lane in front of you, or someone does something that just really frustrates you. Like, there are a lot of bad drivers out there, right? So they just do something, and it frustrates you. What do you do? Well, some of you will speed up, try to pass them and look at them as you pass them. Some of you will tap your brakes. Just tap your brakes until they get a little further off your tail, right? Some of you will do that. Sometimes you think things you shouldn't think. Sometimes you even mouth things you shouldn't mouth. Sometimes you even say things you shouldn't say in those moments, why? Well, because you were inconvenienced and you didn't appreciate that. Well, these people didn't appreciate the fact that their money was taking a hit because the gospel, friends, the gospel upends our worldly values. And this idol of money was pervasive in Ephesus and it's pervasive in our culture now. But think about this. As people's lives were being transformed there in Ephesus, their values changed Because people began to trust in Jesus, they no longer were buying into the things that used to bring them pleasure or comfort or the things that they used to find their hope and their security in. Things were changing. And through the years in different societies where the gospel has been introduced and taken root, things change in those societies. You can read stories of very, um, uh, you know, primitive areas where the gospel comes in and things just begin to change the practices the animistic practices that were once so strongly held to begin to change because the gospel takes that even in even in more cultures and society that are developed. Like the idea of sex trafficking has taken a huge hit because of Christians, because the gospel transforms society. We can think of that in terms of slavery. We can think of that in terms of the care for the poor or the care for orphans. How the gospel has made such an impact. Upending worldly values that so often revolve just around ourselves. It's also true though that in the secular society that is opposed to the Christian worldview that things don't change and things even get worse. We see that happening in America. We see how as secularism grows, godlessness increases. We see that with frivolous lawsuits targeted as Christian business owners We see that his attempt to outlaw certain teachings of Scripture. We see that with an overall animosity towards those who follow Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because the values of the Word contradict the values of Scripture. As secularism increases, the pervading view towards Christians and Christianity is antagonism. And let's be honest, friends, we're partly to blame. We're partly to blame. Because if professing Christians lived according to our stated values and convictions, then things would be different in our lives. For many of us, things would be different in our lives. We would invest our time We would invest our resources. We would invest our energy. We would invest our giftedness differently. And if the tens of millions of professing Christians in America lived faithfully according to biblical standards and principles, then I think our society would look a little bit different right now. What if we all took it upon ourselves to speak and live the gospel like we really believed it, like life really depended on it, Like, this is truly where hope is. What would be different in your world? What would be different in your family? What would be different in our city? What would be different in our states and in our nation and in our world? The godliness, godlessness, that is so pervasive today is in part because professing Christians have capitulated to the world in so many areas. And why have we done that? Well, because we like what the world has to offer. We enjoy what the world has to offer. Studies reveal over and over again that so many Christians engage in the same things as the world engages in. Right? We live for money, and we live for fame, and we live for power, and we live for pleasure, and we live for comfort, and we live for temporal happiness, and we live for ease. And unfortunately, it seems that too many professing Christians don't Value what Jesus valued. Sacrifice and service and discipleship and truth and community and accountability. Some Christians, professing Christians, just want enough religion to placate their guilty feelings but they don't want enough to really live on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an issue. This is a problem in our society today. But friends, let me just say, the gospel upends worldly values. It upends selfish values in those who believe the gospel and who love Jesus Christ. Look, that's what the Spirit does. That's the promise of Ezekiel 36, right, in the New Covenant, that God will take our dead hearts of stone and replace them with a heart of flesh. In other words, a heart that is alive, a heart that beats and yearns for God. And he will give us his spirit, the text says, and he will cause us to, walk in his ways and cause us to obey his statutes and no we're not going to become perfect it's not like we're never going to sin again we will but scripture claims that those who are in christ will love the truth and will walk in the truth and will walk in righteousness first john and paul says as he writes to the church on crete as he writes to his friend titus He says that God's grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness. Friends, this isn't about legalism. It's not about you can't do this and you have to do that. It's about loving Jesus. It's about being satisfied with Jesus and all that he has to give. It's about responding to Jesus because of his great grace in the gospel to us or the gospel upends false gods. So Demetrius identifies the financial threat, but then he moves to the religious threat, right? He realizes that the gospel threatens the very worship of Artemis, right? The gospel claims that there is one God who is worthy of worship. And we know this God through Jesus Christ, the Son. Right, God eternal, existing eternally in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God takes on flesh. He's worthy because of who he is. He's worthy because of what he has done. How sinners have rebelled against him. But because of his love, he's sent his Son. God has taken on flesh. And he's lived a perfect life, obeying the will of the Father in everything. And then died on the cross for our sin to pay the penalty we could never pay but the penalty that we definitely owed and then rose again on the third day and that all who will put their hope and their trust in him will have forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life this is the true god this is the creator god and paul is saying look the gods that you make with human hands they're not real this one artemis that you're worshiping she's not real she can't accomplish anything for you here's the truth found in jesus christ And Demetrius is no dummy. If people keep believing the gospel, then their great goddess will be seen as nothing and their whole worlds will come undone. Let's look at verses 28 through 34. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were his friends, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, the city is in an uproar. They're on the verge of a riot. There's a great frenzy. The theater there in Ephesus was said to hold about 25,000 people. And you can imagine, even if half of it was full, all chanting in unison, Artemis' greatness. What a scene that would have been. But so many of the people didn't even know what was going on. There was just confusion reigning. So they put forth this Jew named Alexander who wants to come and he wants to speak and don't know really why he wants to speak. Maybe he just wanted to um, make a clear distinction between the Christians, those who followed the way, who were clearly their fingers or people were pointing their fingers at them, and the Jews, right? Those who were holding to Judaism. We're not like them. We don't like them either. Don't take well that he got run off. He got run off as well. It's just confusion reigning everywhere let's take a moment to think about the absurdity of the scene if Artemis is so great then why does he, she need a silversmith to defend her if she is so powerful and awesome then why is she at risk of becoming completely irrelevant and by the way don't miss this paul in the midst of the chaos wants to go to the theater to talk to speak you know what he wants to do? I'm certain he wants to proclaim Christ. I'm certain that he wants to make a defense of the gospel. Now, they don't let him, but he was thinking, what an opportunity. Friends, the gospel upends false gods. The gospel calls us to put our hope in the one true and living God, the Savior, the one who has defeated sin and death. The gospel upends false gods because the God of the gospel is the only true God, always. And friends, the Christian worldview is the only worldview that can coherently answer all of life's questions, basic questions. How did we get here? What does it mean to be human? What's this life all about? What happens when we die? Can we really know anything? Is there truth out there? Friends, the gospel answers all of those questions coherently. It upends all false gods. But finally, the gospel upends pseudo-peace. Look at verse 35 through the end of the chapter. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the town clerk, a respected, influential person, comes to the scene. This was the person who was kind of the leader of the, of the city of Ephesus. He was the liaison between the officials of Ephesus and those who were the Roman authorities, Ephesus being under Roman um, control at this point. And he wants to keep the peace because he knows that if there's a riot, the Romans will come in and they'll take things over and they'll do things. So he wants to keep the peace, but notice how he does it. He more or less reinterprets what Paul and the associates would have been saying. Oh, they're not sacrilegious. Oh, they're not blaspheming our great goddess. No, no, nothing to see here. There's nothing wrong. Don't don't worry about what they're saying. We're gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be fine. Look, we know how great our goddess is. Everything's gonna be just fine. Now, in, in a very technical sense, that word sacrilegious is associated with people who would steal or rob from the temple. Well, no, that's not what Paul and his associates were doing. But in another very real sense, they were blaspheming their goddess because they were saying that she's not even a god. There's nothing there. But notice what this town clerk is doing. He's just saying whatever he can in the moment to make the people calm down. There's peace, there's peace, everything's okay. But friends, there is no peace. There is no peace apart from Jesus Christ. There is no peace apart from faith in the one true and living God. It's pseudo peace, it's false peace that, that this man is pushing right now. And we don't know exactly what happened. Very likely the silversmiths went on, continued to turn a prophet and the people continued to worship this God Artemis. Everyone went on with their lives as if there was peace but the fact is there was no peace. And we need to hear that because today there is no peace with the creator God apart from a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no peace. The Bible teaches that in our sin and our rebellion, we are at war with God. And if we remain in our sin and in our rebellion, then we will suffer eternally for our sin, for our rebellion against him. The Bible says that God loves us and he sent Jesus Christ's son to die in our place, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we don't want to die, and then to raise from the dead. And he says that for all those who will put their hope and their trust in Jesus and what he has accomplished, there is forgiveness of sin and there is eternal life. Where are you today? The gospel upends pseudo peace and calls us to faith in the one who is called the Prince of Peace. Where are you today spiritually? Have you recognized your sin Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sin, the one who rose again and who is able to give life? Today, call out to him. Find hope in him. Humble yourself before him. In just a moment, we're gonna pray, and then we'll have a time of response If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then I encourage you to come and we would love to connect with you about that very fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and that through him there is the promise of forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Maybe there's somebody who just want to pray because you recognize that there are some things that need upending in your life. So you want to humble yourself when you want to pray and you want to ask God to do the work that, that only he can do in your life to make you more like him, to give you a greater distaste for sin, to confess sin, to repent of it, to renounce in your life and to live more for his glory. Maybe that's, maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you want someone to pray with you. I would encourage you to pray with someone who's right next to you or we're able to pray with you. We'd love to connect with you and pray with you even even here. Maybe there's some who are ready to join this church. You've been through the process, like in our first service, Madison Jordan joined the church. Uh, others of you may, are, may be ready for baptism, and you want to tell the church, I want to be baptized. I'm trusting in Christ, and I'm ready. And we want to celebrate with you for that. Certainly, God is at work in our lives and in our church, and we want to be humble and respond to what he's doing. So would you pray with me, and then we'll stand and sing together. God, thank you for your mercy for your grace and for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for showing yourself to us. Thank you for truth. Thank you that you are a God who loves. Thank you you are a God who is gracious. Thank you that you are a God who has defeated the greatest enemy, death. And we pray that we would find our life in you. Do your work the work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand and respond as God leads.